Good morning again, Redeemer. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Acts, Acts chapter 13. We're going to go through two chapters this morning, and I'm not going to read them all. So uh, I, won't, I, won't, I won't do that to you, but I will read what I will call the bookends of chapters 13 and 14. The reason we're looking at this as one preaching cycle is because this is actually one entire missionary journey. And so Paul's going to begin and he's going to end at the end, end of uh, Acts 14. And so we're going to just read the bookends. Let's read Acts um, 13, 1 through 12, and then we'll flip over and read the end of 14, beginning in 19, and read that through 28. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, while the church where they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the, with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all, um, all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. The proconsul believed, and when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. I'll turn over to Acts 14:19. But Jews from Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on to Barnabas and Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they testified to all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Let's pray together. 
Father in heaven, we rejoice that you are a speaking and revealing God. And as we turn our hearts and our corporate attention to your word and acts, Father, I pray that you will speak to your people. We have your word, and it is in our homes and on our phones and our diet through the week. Um, may have been good and it may have been difficult. And yet, Lord, there is something sacred and special about when we gather and when you speak. And so, Father, I pray that you will speak to your people, that you will form in us that which you would have us to be in Jesus as a church. Speak through your servant. May Jesus' name and his work be glorified. Amen. <clears throat> so, um, man, we're, we're covering two chapters. And so rather than... Um, introduce a sermon like I would normally do, what I think is important is to give you a few anchoring points that, that'll help you know where we are and what's happening in the book of Acts. Here's the first thing to know, that where we are right now in Acts 13, it is what scholars call part two of the book of Acts. So part one is chapters one through 12, and the focus there is Peter and, and Jerusalem and the gospel going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what you're about to see in part two, beginning in 13, Peter is going to fall to the background and the apostle Paul is going to come to the foreground. And the gospel is about to really go to the ends of the earth. So what we're reading right now at Acts 13 is the beginning of part two. The gospel is about to go postal. That's the first thing that's important. The second thing that's important is there's a name shift for the apostle Paul here. Up until this point, he's been called Saul, 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 Saul. Now he's about to be called Paul. And it's really subtle, but what we think is happening here is that Saul is his Hebrew name. And we're going to learn later in the book of Acts that Paul has, uh, has Roman citizenship. And so he also has a Roman or a Latin name, and that's Paul. And so as he goes to engage the Gentiles, he doesn't use his Hebrew name anymore. He starts to use this other name, Paul. That's important. What's also important is John Mark. This is, we think, is the author of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read in our passage, as we've just read, that he, he went initially on this first missionary journey. It says that he left with them, but he doesn't finish the journey. He stops mid-journey and goes back to Jerusalem. We know from last week, Jerusalem is where his mother's house was. It's where the prayer service was. And so we think John Mark leaves the mission field, goes back home. This is important because at the end of Acts 15, Barnabas and Paul get into it. And they get into it over John Mark. And Paul is like, no, nah, bro, he didn't go with us through the whole journey. I can't roll with him like that no more. And Barnabas is more gracious. He's like, no, he has useful service. And so they split ways in Acts 15. Paul says, I'm going to take Silas. And Barnabas and John Mark go on to do their work together. And guess what? God blesses both of their labors. What's also important is Barnabas and Paul are sent out from this church in Antioch. And they return to the church in Antioch. In other words, these are frontier missionaries. This is an apostle. 
and a son of encouragement. They're going to do mighty gospel work, and yet they're doing it under and with the church. They're not lone rangers just doing what they want to do. They're connected to, near. They love the church. There is also beautiful symmetry in this book. And I want to show you this by the way of the map. You got that for me? All right, here we go. So here's where they begin, right here in Antioch. And you'll notice that they go to Cyprus, then they go over here to Lycia, they go up into Antioch of Pisidia, that's not to be confused with Antioch here. Antioch was a common name like Jackson, Jackson, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi, Jackson, Tennessee, right? And then they come over here to Derby. Now look here, it would have been more convenient for Paul, right there in Derby. Look at Tarsus, that's where Paul is from. And then look at Antioch. If they were driven by convenience, what they would have done was, man, we can just go home right here. But notice when you read 13 through 14, the same cities that they stopped through, with the exception of Cyprus, they come back through. In other words, they're not driven by convenience. They're not driven by cost effectiveness. What is driving them to make them make this long and difficult journey, not once, but to go back through the same cities where they just came when it would have been convenient just to take it to the crib? Why? He tells us, it was one of the passages that we read, to strengthen the disciples. And so he goes through once to evangelize, and he turns around and goes through a second time to make sure they were being strengthened. And guess what Paul did? Before he went back to Antioch, it says that he and they appointed elders in every city. All right, thank you, Andre. Now, why is that important? It's important because Paul is not a charlatan. He's not a fly-by-night peddler of the Word of God. He really cares about the conversions and the maturing of the saints. He is ambitious, y'all, but he does not let ambition get in the way of church health. He wants to make sure that in my absence, these young believers have under shepherds who can stay and that they are on one accord. And so Paul goes back through those same cities. And then lastly, we have what I would call a, 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 a Lucan sandwich. Luke is the author of Acts. But you'll notice with me, notice what happens at the beginning of Acts 13. What were they doing? Look at verse 2. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, we believe that they probably fasted leading into worship, where they drew near to God, denied their bodies comforts and food, repented of sins, drew near to God. And when they entered into worship, they worshiped, they sang, they prayed. And after worship, they had the supper and they probably had a meal together, feasting in what God had done. And they were worshiping together. It is in the context of worship and fasting and praying that the Holy Spirit shows up. Now hold that thought. Notice how chapter 14 ends. 
it ends with Paul and Barnabas going back to Antioch, the same church, and notice what it says in verse 27. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they testified to all that God had done with them. In other words, this section is bookended by worship. They're worshiping in the beginning, and they're worshiping at the end, and what's in the middle? It's work. It's work. Look again at 13.2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work. So what you get in the middle of the bookends of worship, worship at the beginning, worship at the end. Notice how Luke even tells us, go back to 27 in chapter 14. When they arrived, they gathered the church together and declared all that God had done and go right before it in verse 26, they went back where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. You see, you see what Luke is doing? Worship, worship, work is in the middle. Now why? It's a beautiful reminder then for us, isn't it, church? They were a worshiping church, and they were a working church. It's a beautiful reminder for those of us who are gathered here in this room and online for worship, and we're doing it together as a community to not lose sight of those who are not. And when we do, we turn and we repent that if we truly understand the heart of God, that we would long for, pray for, give to, and go towards people and places with no outpost of hope. In Acts 11, it was indiscriminate evangelism done in the city of Antioch. In Acts 13 and 14, some in the city are actually leaving to go where those don't know their right hand and from their left. What's better than personally knowing Jesus, being in beautiful community with others who know him? What's better than being in beautiful community with those who know Jesus, seeing others? who did not know or hear of God's grace, be welcomed into the family of God. This is why Jesus says, I tell you, there is joy in heaven when one sinner repents and comes home. What can we learn from the text this morning? First, the Holy Spirit may call some in this room to work beyond where you are. Look, y'all, chapter 13 starts off as a dream team. Luke starts to list there were in the church prophets and teachers, and we, also, we already know that, that Paul is an apostle. 
So he, he's given us a list of names, and there was Simeon who was called Niger. We think he's a black African Christian who is in this church in Antioch. And then Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene was on the northern tip of Africa. Manaean was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. He's probably a wealthy man who was friends with the king, who is now a convert in Jesus, and he's in the church in Antioch. This is the dream team. You got John, Mark, and Barnabas, and Paul on top of all of this, and the lay people ain't half-stepping. What did we learn about this church a few weeks ago? It was there in this church that Christians first got the name Christians. It was there in this church where they were discipled for a whole year growing in wisdom. It was there in this church when they heard about the famine coming in Jerusalem that every single member out of their means gave. In other words, this is a really healthy church. And I think that's what Luke is saying. And then all of a sudden, one day in a worship service, the Holy Spirit says, I want Paul and I want Barnabas for myself to do this work that I'm calling them to do. Now, now, now let that wash over you. What does that feel like? when you lose people who have been integral to the church. You don't have to imagine. Haven't we walked through this as a church? Think about people who were here who were no longer here and what it felt like to hear the news that they're leaving. And this can be former pastors, former staff persons, former growth group leaders. And they come to you and they say, the Lord is calling us elsewhere. That's hard. And that's painful. And that's fearful. And yet what you see in the passage is the Holy Spirit does it. He doesn't bring this to a vote. He doesn't run this by us to see if we approve of it. He is sovereign and he is Lord and he does what he pleases and that's what he does in this passage. He says, give me two of the best out of your fellowship and I want them now. He takes the liberty to call some away from a place of health for other areas and peoples unreached. And not only does he call away what we see in this first section, is he calls away and he gives to those he calls away every single thing they need to do the work that he's calling them to do. You'll notice that Luke is careful to say in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, you see it down in verse 9, but Saul, who is also called Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is doing the calling and the Holy Spirit is doing the equipping and the giving. And so that when Paul goes to Cyprus, they meet this proconsul, which is a fancy word for a governor. And, and this governor has this side dude who's a false prophet. And this side dude who's a false prophet, he's like a wolf in sheep's clothing right? He's a 
false prophet and he's a magician. And this strong military figure probably keeps him on the side to keep cool with the Jews and in case he needs some black magic and some awesome other stuff. And all of a sudden, this guy wants to hear the word of God. And then Paul says, I see who you are. You're full of villainy and treachery and unrighteousness. For a season, you will not be able to see. And in that moment, this guy is struck with blindness. And then it says about about Sergius Paulus, look at it in verse 7. He's a man of intelligence, but his intelligence doesn't save him. It's the Holy Spirit who saves. It's the Holy Spirit who gives Paul the wisdom to see the treachery in this man's heart. It's the Holy Spirit who gives Paul this power to make him blind. It's the Holy Spirit who cuts through his genius and makes him believe the light of the gospel. In other words, what you see in Luke is those whom God calls to these new works. The Holy Spirit will give you every single thing you need for the work. He doesn't issue half calls. Well, what about the church over here? What you mean you take in Paul and Barnabas? Are they going to be okay? Yes. They were intact. When Paul finished that journey, he gathered the church. He didn't have to go look for them. They were still there standing. Over in Acts 18, when Paul finishes another missionary journey, guess where he goes? He goes back to the church at Antioch, and he lingers there to be refreshed. Guess what we know, right? Later on in church history, there's a, a, a church father, and his name is Ignatius, and he was martyred in 14, I mean, 140 AD. We believe that's 90 years after what you see happening here. And guess what he was? The bishop of the church in Antioch. You can't tell me the Holy Spirit can't call people away, can't give them what they need to do the work that they're going to do, and simultaneously take care of this church over here. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing in this section. This isn't musical chairs. This isn't sheep switching. This isn't moving on because we're tired. No, these brothers have a gospel burden for a people who live in darkness. And maybe the Lord is doing that in your heart. Maybe your heart breaks over an unreached people group or an unreached part of our city or an unreached part on this planet. Or maybe you, like me, you live in Jackson and you see what's on the news. And there are nights when I weep that the city of Seoul doesn't always appear to have a soul. And I wonder how long, what do you want? How can the light break into the darkness of where we live? Have I grown comfortable in the world that I live in that I shut my eyes to those who are groping in the darkness? That what this passage reminds us, beloved, is that we can't lose sight of the lost just because we are sitting here worshiping where it's comfortable. We can't. That the Holy Spirit speaks. He speaks to his people. 
And oftentimes he calls us to create new ministries and to do new things to spread the aroma of Jesus. One of my favorite animated films is How to Train Your Dragon. I love it, I love it, I love it, right? If you haven't watched it as an adult, I will challenge you to go watch them. They are really good. But in the first one, there's this tension between dragons and Vikings. And so these Vikings hate dragons, dragons hate Vikings. And then this, this sort of this no-name character named Hiccup, he's curious. And he discovers that dragons aren't out who you make them to be. That they can actually befriend humans. And he befriends Night Fury. Night Fury's named Toothless, and he is the most vicious dragon out there. And they become best buds. Well, in the second movie, there's an alpha dragon. And this dragon is evil. He's under the spell of another person. And what they didn't know in the first one, they learned in the second one, that this alpha dragon is the father of all the other dragons. And what they discover in the second one is this alpha dragon can summon all the other dragons. And all of a sudden, Toothless, who used to be loyal to Hiccup, can be summoned, right? When, when the father of all dragons calls and it makes him break down these bonds. Now he's evil, but the principle there is the same. What if I told you that we are children of the Alpha and the Omega? And sometimes, for glory and good of his kingdom, God summons. And he stirs in our hearts. And he causes us to long and to care for people in places that are unreached. Doesn't this sound like the gospel? That Jesus, who enjoyed beautiful fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, they did not need humans, but Jesus broken over us who walked in darkness. He says, Father, send me on a mission. Send me on a mission. And for a season, I will leave right here and I will go and enter into the womb of a uterus and I will walk the dusty roads of Palestine. Even if it means it makes me go to a cross, I will lay down my life to make many brothers and sisters heirs and co-heirs with me that what you're starting to see is that this is the life of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit may and can and often will call us out of what is comfortable to do what might be dangerous but glorious. What's the second point? This work is ultimately God's work, and we are entering into it. Now, you can see right at the beginning that, that it's ambiguous. You look at 13.2, 2, 
Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work in which I've called them. Well, what's the work? He doesn't tell them right there. Now, by the time you get to the end of this section, we know what the work is. Well, what is the work, Paul? The work is down in 1427, how God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, who are Gentiles? Jews viewed the world through four lenses. You were either a Jew or a proselyte, which meant you were non-Jewish, but you were circumcised. You went through the ceremonial washings. You embraced the Torah and you came into their life and culture. There was a third category called God-fearers. You were still Gentile and you did not undergo circumcision, but you did like the moral law and their instruction. And there was a fourth category, Gentiles. Now, the first three, they are a sliver of a sliver of a sliver of the entire world. The great majority of the rest of the world fell in category number four. And so what you have Paul and Barnabas doing is going where no Jews had gone before, to do what no Jews before them had ever done. But we would be wrong if we thought that Barnabas and, and Paul were the ultimate missionaries. They were not. It was God. And you see this fleshed out in Acts 13, 47. Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia, and he's addressing the Jews of the city. And he's, this is what he says in, in 13, 47. For so the Lord has commanded us. Who's the us? It's the Jews saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Whoa. You hear that? That quote is from Isaiah, Isaiah 49, written 750 years before Paul shows up. In other words, what Paul is saying is we are not living into our missional identity. What God intended for us is to come to the light and then to be a light for the Gentiles. And that was not true. It was not happening. His sovereign plan from the beginning was to bring the good news to them that it might go through them. They were to be a city on a hill. They were to be light and to let that light shine. And wherever they went, in Egypt, in Babylon, Assyria, Joppa, Nineveh, Derby, Lystra, wherever they went, they were supposed to be the aroma of Yahweh. And when strangers came into their midst, they were supposed to be the aroma of Yahweh. That's what they were supposed to do and they failed to do it. They lost sight. They were partial. They were comfortable. They were selective. And then Paul says, before y'all stone me and resist this and do, and do something harmful to me, let me warn you. And you see it in 1341. He says, look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if no one tells you. Who is Paul talking about there? He's talking about God. Holy Spirit's calling them to work, but the work that they're doing is to enter into God's work. 
And what Paul does is he quotes Habakkuk to them, and he basically says from Habakkuk 1.5, let me warn you, what Habakkuk warned Israel, I'm doing a new work. If you don't repent, if you don't turn, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans in, and they will judge you. And what Paul is doing is basically telling his hearers in his sermon, if you resist this, if you resist this new work that God is doing to rescue the Gentiles through Jesus, the Lord is coming not in mercy. He's coming in judgment. And there is judgment in this section. Paul gets stoned and it says that they dusted the dust off their feet. What's so important about that? You know what Jesus says in Matthew and Luke? He says, when you go into towns and they receive you, go in and eat whatever they give you. And if they reject you, shake the dust off of your feet. It will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than those whose dust is shaken over them. In other words, this ain't just future judgment that Paul is pronouncing for those who rebel against God's work. Jesus is saying, when you do this on earth, it is done in heaven. Who is the ultimate missionary here? Who cares about this vision to reach the lost? It's God. And you also see it, and I want to be really quick on this point. You see it when and where Paul and Barnabas go. Now, what's their missionary strategy? Everywhere they go in 13 and 14, the first place they go is the synagogue of the Jews. Synagogue of the Jews. It's like a refrain, synagogue of the Jews. And on what day of the week do they go? It's on the Sabbath. Look at 1314, 1342, 1344. Synagogue and Sabbath. That's his missionary strategy. Now, here's my question Who created the Sabbath? Whose idea was it? It was God's. Who scattered Israel across the nations? It was God. And so think about this. This is the wisdom of God that is wiser than the wisdom of man. Here God is back at the beginning of time. I'm going to scatter you. And whether you want to scatter or not, I'm going to make you get scattered. And here is God before all time. I'm going to give you a Sabbath day, one day out of seven, where you meet and learn and worship and rest. And here is God using what God set apart back there in the beginning before Paul and Barnabas shows up. That's the strategy. Find out what God is up to. Find out what God is doing. And you enter into what God has already done. That's his missionary strategy. It's not to be inventive. It's not to to create new things. It's to first ask the question, where is God at work? That's where I go. I enter into what God is doing. Look, y'all, when, when we started campus ministry at Jackson State, some of y'all know because y'all were fasting and praying with us. And y'all know 
that for three months, our application just sat on a desk and we're raising money and we're talking about what we want to do and we're prayer walking on campus and it sat on somebody's desk and we're weary. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, a friend of mine that I've been friends with since I was eight years old, he's a pastor now in Columbia, South Carolina. And he said, yo, won't you go holler at Miss Stewart? He's like, you remember Miss Stewart? I said, Miss Stewart? He said, Lori, Lori Stewart. And it hit me like right then and there that, that he escorted her. She was the Miss Jackson State in 1998. He escorted her. He went to Jackson State and played football. And all of a sudden, this guy that I'm still friends with, who was in my wedding, y'all, I can't get on campus. He calls me out of the blue. Go see Miss Stewart. She'll hook you up. I went to Miss Stewart's office. Say, hey, my friend Tori told me to come holler at you. Miss Stewart made one phone call, one phone call to the VP, and we were on campus in a week. Why? I didn't know when I was seven and eight that God would use that back then to get us on campus. He didn't know when he escorted her in 98 and 99 for Miss JSU that God was going to use that to get us on campus. This is the wisdom of God, that when we show up to do these new works, the right question is, God, where have you been at work? What have you been doing? This is what Paul is capitalizing on. The work is ultimately God's. And this is so encouraging. If the Lord is calling you to something new, he loves those people more than you do. And he has been at work before you show up. And he will be at work through you. But this is God's work. And we're entering into his work. That burden that we feel, it is relieved, beloved, when you understand that you serve a big God who works all things according to the counsel of his will and his purposes. This is good news. It's balm for the fearful. It soothes our soul. And lastly, what is the primary work? The primary work is to tell them about Jesus' work and Jesus' worth. That's the primary work and worth. Tell them about Jesus' work and worth. That if you were to take some time, and I would encourage you, employ you, sometime today, please read Acts 13 through 14. You're going to see a series of sermons. Paul's going to go into this city. He's going to preach. He's going to go into this city and he's going to preach. And that is the primary work. However, when you say primary, you have to account for secondary, right? You can't have primary without secondary. Primary means that it is the most important of multiple things. But the other things are really important. And so maybe the Lord is moving your heart to think about our Latino brothers and sisters in our city. Maybe the Lord is stirring. Maybe you have a heart 
for those in the trap and in the streets. And the Lord is stirring. And maybe you have a heart for those in this parish. We envision this being a place where people walk to church and view this as home. Maybe the Lord is stirring. Whatever it is, this new thing that God might be stirring in your heart. Here's what I want to tell you. We are called to do the secondary things. We can teach English as a second language. We can give legal experience and talents, right? That we can reason apologetically with people and be good listeners and and friends and hosts. We can set a table and invite people. We can do all of those things and we have to do all of those things. They're important, but notice how Paul's frame for ministry, the most important thing he's doing when he goes to all of these towns, all of these towns, I want to show you, not just tell you. Now buckle up, have your Bibles, or have your phones in front of you, because I want you to see it. This is going to sound like a broken record. What did Paul do when he landed on Cyprus? Look at 13.5. He proclaimed the word of God. Sergius Paulus summoned them to hear what? 13.7, the word of God. He was astonished at the teaching of what? 13.12, the teaching of the Lord. In Antioch in Pisidia, 13.15, they were reading the law and the prophets and asked them if they had any word of encouragement. And Paul stood up using the law and the prophets. He quoted Genesis. He quotes Exodus. He makes references to Judges and Samuel all the way to David. And then he quotes Habakkuk and Isaiah and the Psalms. In 1344, they gathered in the city to hear the word of God, and Gentiles rejoiced over the word of the Lord. 1348, in Iconium, God gave signs and wonders to bear witness to the word of grace. 14.3. Sounds like a broken record, but what Paul did in every single place he went to be the light and to rescue people He reasoned here. Look, y'all, having game nights and cookouts and serving food and teaching English and lending all of our experience, like, these are great things. But notice what Paul does He tells the greatest story ever written about Jesus. He reasons with them about Jesus from the beginning, from Exodus all the way to David. He talks about the new king who has come to set things right. He talks about us living in darkness being plagued with sin, and someone has come as a savior to rescue from us from our sin. He speaks of this holy one of God who was sent on a rescue mission to redeem us from the law. He talks about this holy one of God who did not see corruption but but was raised in life. In other words, what Paul is doing, he is enamored with the story of someone greater than himself. 
He's enamored with Jesus, and he wants them to hear the story of Jesus. There is someone who has taken a farther journey than we've taken from Antioch to come here. There is someone who left the right hand of God, and yes, we're going to endure tribulations and beatings and persecutions, but let me tell you about someone else who suffered on a cross to die for sins. Let me tell you about what he endured. We are coming in the power of the Spirit, but the Spirit is only poured out because the one who overcame hell and the grave has ascended, and he's pouring out his Spirit what Paul is doing in every single city, point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus. This is what I want for us, Redeemer. That if God is calling you to something new, Remember that you've been tasked to do something old, tried and true. Tell and live the greatest story about the greatest person to ever walk this earth. Tell them about a God who tells us to buy food with no money. Tell them about a God who says nothing in your hands you need. Simply to thy cross we cling. That is how God moves us from darkness into light. Let's pray together. Father, we bless you. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the crucified yet risen and triumphant king. Father, help us as your people to remember what it was like to not know you, to be without hope and without God. Help us, Lord, to remember what it was like to do those things, Lord, that we are now, as Paul says, ashamed of. Were it not for your grace and the calling of your spirit to send someone or someones in our way to introduce us to the king of heaven. Our lives have been changed. We see you. We love you. We know you. We rejoice in you that you're preparing a home for us right now, that you might be with us forever. That is beautiful and encouraging. And Lord, there are people who don't have this hope, and you give us but a season, but a breath in this life to be salt, to be light. Father, help us as we enter into eternity to look to our right and to our left and to be able to see those who are in the kingdom because you, Holy Spirit, have led us. Build us up, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.